I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is Raja Selvam. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and the developer of Integral Somatic Psychology, a therapeutic approach based on emerging scientific paradigms of embodied cognition, emotion, and behavior, and affective neuroscience, as well as a wide range of Western and Eastern psychological, somatic, energetic, and spiritual approaches from Reichian therapy somatic experiencing, and biodynamic craniosacral therapy to Jungian psychology, quantum physics, and Advaita Vedanta. What a wonderful range that is. Thank you. He does professional training all over the world and is the author of this fascinating new book that we'll be talking about, The Practice of Embodying Emotions, A Guide to Improving Cognition, emotional, and behavioral outcomes. Raja, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you, Tonio. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you what this book is about. So emotions are fascinating and also very mysterious. In our culture, we tend to dismiss emotions as being irrational and therefore not important and yet they can have such profound impact on us in every area of our lives. 
and, and every second of our lives. Exactly. So could you begin by explaining what emotions are and then how they actually impact our lives and our cognitive abilities and our behavior? Yeah, I'll be very glad to get into it. Um, a lot of it we have come to know only in the recent past. As you know, emotions are considered to be irrational and reason is considered to be paramount in its importance in living a healthy life. What we have started to discover in cognitive psychology and neuroscience is that in every moment of our lives, it is emotion that is a greater influencer of our cognition and behavior than the other way around. Sure, we can, we can change our emotional state through cognition and behavior. For example, I change the meaning I have about a trauma. I experience an earthquake. When I form a meaning that it has to do with God, I'm less likely to be as traumatized as when I form the opinion or the meaning that uh, it is something very personal. Uh, it is so unfortunate. It's another instance of the victimization of my life that I continue to experience, that I continue to experience throughout my life. The two different meanings, and two different meanings can, you know, either help us to re react less to the situation or, or to reduce our emotional reaction to the earthquake, in, or very often children, when they're abused, will form the opinion, it is my fault. Even adults do that too. This gives them some sense of control over their lives because if it's my fault, I can imagine what I did wrong and I could try to not uh, repeat the same behavior. So thinking about, we can change our emotional state to cognition or thinking. That's what cognitive therapy is about and it is an evidence-based therapy. And on the other hand, we can also change the emotional state through behavior. For example, you know, we feel more empowered, you know, when there is a disturbance in the neighborhood by calling the police, having the police come over, we feel safer in the house when we have a disturbance in the neighborhood. Or when we have difficulty in doing something, uh, we're afraid to do that. Sometimes by repeatedly trying to do that, we overcome the fear. So these are common experiences, right? This, this cannot be denied. But what people are discovering in affective neuroscience and, and cognitive psychology is that in every moment of our lives, emotion, it is emotion that governs all aspects of cognition. And by all aspects of cognition, um, what I look at in the environment depends on whether I'm depressed or whether I'm happy. What I focus on, you know, I tend to focus on unhappy people or things that reinforce my unhappiness in the neighborhood. When I'm in love, you know, the whole world is in love with me, I think, and actually feel, you know, I'm sure that you've experienced that too. So, you know, every aspect of cognition, what I remember, memory, and I'm defining cognition very broadly to include all cognitive operations of the mind, starting with attention, whether I pay attention to something or not. You know, after the tsunami, people are sitting there, unable to pay attention to anything in their environment. Yeah, we saw that in 
after uh, 9-11 too. So what we focus on, what meaning we make of it, and what we remember, our language ability, everything, not just abstract thought. And we often think of abstract thought when it comes to cognition. Some psychologists have defined cognition very broadly, and that's how they do the research. So every aspect of cognition is affected by this emotional state that I'm in. It also turns out, by extension, what options I have for behavior for responding to situation. You know, if, for example, somebody in a domestic violence situation, now this is topical, isn't it, now that we're bringing it up. You know, when you think of the options they have, they can't think of the options because they've been traumatized for a while and their fear, and the fear makes them foreclose on many options like leaving or going to a shelter, etc. And that's something that therapists try to make them think about. What options do we have to make them feel safer? So, so those options are also, you know, reduced by the emotional state that we are in. There is research by Antonio Damasio, a very famous emotions research. He has, he's become widely known because he's written a series of books such as Descartes' Error, The Feeling of What Happens, Looking for Spinoza, and so on. The first book, Descartes' Error, I Think Therefore I Am, he, the whole book is about presenting neurological evidence that people don't have emotions, right? It's like absence of emotion, which is also an emotional state, by the way. Absence of emotion, right? Being numb is also emotional state. They alter, you know, the meanings that they make, the alternatives that they can generate, and the optimal decision they can make, all of them are compromised. And this is something that I will talk about a little later. So in every moment of life, our behavioral possibilities and cognitive possibilities are severely constrained or influenced, impacted by the emotional state that we're in. It is true that we can modify it by thinking about it one way or the other or doing one thing or the other about it. But then you're in another emotional state. That in turn, in the next moment, determines what you will end up perceiving or paying attention to, remembering, etc. So that is recent evidence, you know, relatively recent evidence in the last 20 years so I have not defined emotion. He said it is a mysterious thing. It is indeed a mysterious thing. So I define emotion like Candice Pert in a book, The Molecules of Emotions, that, you know, emotion is not just limited to the primary emotions of Charles Darwin. You know, the Charles Darwin came up with a list of primary emotions, happiness, sadness, anger, fear, surprise, and disgust a whole line of research on basic emotions, you know, dominated the research on emotions for such a long time. And unfortunately, also constrained psychology, especially in training, etc., to just look for these emotions. And, you know, I, when I trained in, in the course of emotions, there wasn't that much, you know, it's a lot about basic emotions and the belief that Somehow all emotional states can be arrived at by a combination of these basic emotions, just like colors, you know, can be, all colors can be arrived at by mixing different, you know, basic colors, which is the primary colors they're called. And so that really limited, limited the focus on emotional experiences in psychology. And I, I run into it even now. I say the following. Emotions can be anything. And what is an emotion? Emotion is the impact 
the definition I use is that an emotion is the impact that an event has on the organism. And I will use this later in the embodiment practice. I love that definition. Yeah, yeah. So the impact that the situation has on our well-being, which is our whole body-mind physiology, our organism as a whole, you know, without being dual about it. It's the entirety of our body and brain physiology. So I include in my definition of emotions, you know, feelings, affects, emotions, you know, moods, you know, or temperament, like being pessimistic, optimistic, so all of these phenomena I include in the definition of emotions. And the reason why I do that is because often, as a clinical psychologist, I hear from the therapists that I supervise that the person does not have, my client does not have affect. My client has very limited access to emotions or feelings. So I'm not making a distinction between any of these things. I just wanted to clarify. And I wanted to include in it as many different possibilities, you know, I've even included the, invented a new category, you know, badly labeled, and it, uh, I'll talk about it a little bit. So I tell my supervisees the following, or my clients, you have come to me, right? Your client has come to you because they're feeling bad about something, correct? Otherwise, why would they come to you? They, they want to just pay you and tell you how happy they are in their lives? No, they're feeling bad, not just bad, they're suffering. And they're not only suffering in the brain. They could very well be suffering in the brain, right? Sometimes they limit the emotional experience in the brain. But they're feeling bad enough. Any difficulty they have, cognitive difficulty, behavioral difficulty, or emotional difficulty, basically comes down to unpleasant emotional difficulty. You can reduce it to that. And they say, do you feel bad about it? They say, of course I feel bad. And then asking them, what do you feel? They've made an emotional statement, right? I feel bad. I feel bad. And so then you say, let's use that as the emotion and start to develop a capacity for it. So by defining the emotion in a broad way, we have a better chance of finding the emotional response in ourselves and in others because we are always having emotional responses, you know, whether it's limited to the brain or the body. Now, the question also included how can working with emotions improve cognitive and behavioral possibilities for an individual? And so I think that I have to now get into the physiology of emotions a little bit before I can answer that question. So do you mind if I do that? Please, please. Yeah. Do. So where is emotion experienced? Where is it generated? These are questions that have been asked for over 100 years. Or if you want to go back to the ancient philosophers, it goes back as far as we have been on planet Earth as a species. Now, the tendency has been to try to locate it in the brain, in the cognitive brain, the limbic brain, the center of emotions, and the reptilian brain, the distinction we have heard of Paul McLean. So the triune brain... It turns out that the triune brain model does not have any scientific evidence. And this is really brought home in a recent book called How Emotions Are Made by a great researcher, Lisa Feldman Barrett. Essentially, Paul McLean looked at very limited data, observational data at a time we didn't have the ability to probe deeply into the brain. 
and concluded by looking at the structure on the outside that uh, you know these we have these three brain parts when in fact the three brain parts are highly interrelated you know they're not modular and so joseph ledoux another famous emotions researcher who researched the role of fear in relation to the amygdala he said that generations of neurological researchers on emotion have been misled by the popularity of the paul maclean theory the the triune brain so what we are discovering is that things are not so specialized the entire body it turns out and i call this the new science of embodied emotion cognition and behavior you know we have always known that the entire brain and body physiology is involved not only in behavior clearly in behavior we have to do something where we use the whole body or uh, use the apparatus of expression you know throat and face physiology that that is clear right however that the entirety of the brain and body physiology is also involved in emotion and cognition are more recent first the emotion it turns out that you know this is one of the chapters of the book the physiology of emotion so i think it's chapter 5 i gather evidence uh, over time including the recent findings that an emotional experience you know can originate in the brain or the body but this is in line with Candice Burt's observation now it's more scientifically based that the experience of emotion as well as the generation of emotion can involve the entirety of the brain and body physiology now please note that i say can it doesn't have to nor do we have to maintain the perfect posture of complete embodiment the expansion of the emotional experience of the generation of emotional experience to every place in the brain and body physiology that's not necessary that's not necessary i had to write about it in the book but the fact that it can be experienced throughout the brain and body physiology gives us a therapeutic tool not just in therapy but also in life and i will give you plenty of examples or my own to embody the emotion to expand the generation and experience of emotion to as much of the body as possible and and through that we can improve cognition and behavior and that's where i'm going to have to explain a little bit you see if the emotion is potentially a brain and body phenomenon without exception this is also by the way you know consistent with the dynamic systems perspective of the brain as opposed to functional specialization perspective of the brain that the entirety of the brain is involved in every action not just one part or the other even though it might appear that way it might originate in one place here there but it, the entirety of the brain is involved now the science of embodied cognition behavior and emotion that i draw this three many streams that i put together to draw this conclusion is that it can involve the entire body and brain physiology and the definition you liked that emotion is the impact of the situation or an aspect of the situation on the organism tells us that you know if i'm really impacted you know by let's say i'm looking for shelter in germany after having to leave my husband behind in ukraine with my children you cannot say that the impact of that situation whatever it is the fear or the grief or sadness etc we cannot say that that the impact would be limited to the brain or the body or to the liver or the kidneys which is another theory you know especially from chinese medicine uh, that some organs are involved more in some emotions than others that might very well be it might generate there energetically 
But if we observe ourselves, I invite your listeners to do the following. Next time you feel bad or you feel very good, it can be applied equally to both experiences. See where it is and see whether you can expand that emotion to other parts of the body, if not to all parts of the body, which is not necessary to expand it, just locally there or to neighboring areas, and you will have a very different experience of it. And your body will also have a very different experience of it. That you'll find it even the fear of dying becomes more bearable and easier to be with so that the brain can process it over a longer period of time as to where it is actually coming from. And one of the reasons why that's so significant is that when we, particularly when we have emotions that are, that are very uncomfortable, yeah. especially difficult and uncomfortable and even unbearable emotions, is that we tend to contract in exactly. response to, the, to that emotional experience. Exactly. And, exactly. What you, and what you're talking about is, is doing the opposite, moving in the opposite direction to, yeah. to actually open mm-hmm. up and allow that feeling allow the experience of those emotions to actually expand in our body yeah, where, where we're actually afraid and actually have an instinct to move away from discomfort. Exactly. Freud actually theorized that our brain is governed by what he calls the pleasure principle, the instinctual avoidance of unpleasant states. So for me, as well as for you, and everybody else on this planet and animals, there is an aversion toward unpleasant experiences. And that it stands to reason because unpleasant experiences are always generated by increasing the dysregulation stress in the body. Pleasant emotional experiences are generated you know, through regulating the body to a healthier state and to reducing the stress in the body. So therefore, we don't want to for survival purposes, be in negative emotions for too long. And given that innate resistance, you know, we, we do different things to avoid, you know, psychological defenses, like, oh, this cannot affect me, or I can always find another partner, or, uh, you know, go toward a philosophical, psychological defense. Everybody is love, everything is love. Why should I suffer from the loss of love I have? I can do all kinds of things to avoid the pain the suffering that I might have to go through temporarily to keep my organism up to date. And on the physiological level, we form differences. Constriction is one of them. Placidity is another. You know, inhibiting movement is another. Or moving a lot is another. You know, like the restless leg syndrome is often associated with the inability to contain an affect so we kind of discharge it through shaking the legs. So, there are also there are seven categories of such defenses that you know body psychotherapists have found, and in one of the chapters I talk about the seven dynamics, physiological dynamics, including constriction, through which we generate emotions or inhibit emotions. So, given all that, what happens is that when we have an emotion, we tend to try to shut it down altogether. The innate resistance would say, "Get rid of it." I don't want to see any sign of it. However, we are still in this situation. We are still in the situation of child abuse or domestic abuse. So the externality is such that we cannot avoid it. The brain, as hard as it tries, the cues in the environment trigger that emotion repeatedly. Then we say the next best we can do is we cannot get rid of it from the 
organism at least limited to the brain. This we can do by you know doing some physiological defenses around the neck, for example, or constricting the body, etc. Right, and and so that it remains in you know, a localized in the physiology of the brain. But very often we do feel it in the body, and we feel it in a very limited place. For example, anxiety is a classic example. We tend to hold the breathing muscles. You know, we tend to tighten the neck muscles. We try to brace and you know pull up the leg muscles and the arm muscles. So you get the idea, you know, to constrict the whole body to make the anxiety disappear where it normally originates in the heart-lung complex. We want to bury it there, but then we are not able to because the pandemic is still there. Our children are still at home and so on. And so we feel it there. And then when clients come to us or, you know, the, the listeners who are interested in these phenomena, they wonder about, what is he talking about? I want to get rid of that anxiety. I don't want to be afraid of dying. And we say, hey, relax, you know, which is a strange thing to say. Allow that anxiety in your body to open up. It can be done through intention because the muscular system is part voluntary, part involuntary, and to a large extent, just allowing it. Understanding that it would be helpful to open the body, open the body, and to invite the emotions into different places in the body. You know, what Rumi said, emotions are like, you know, unexpected guests. You know, open all the doors, he said, open all the windows and light a lamp and let them stay as long as they need to. You know, when I say this, I get chills, you know. I mean, I like Rumi. And so this is what we're asking people to do. You know, not only invite the unpleasant emotions, let them occupy as much of the brain and body as possible and welcome them, even though in expanding the suffering that we want to get rid of, but you will find that you have a better chance of changing the emotional state, the pain it causes when you do that. I'll give you an example. A woman came to me during one of the trainings and that she would like help with the following. Her husband fell in love with the secretary, their secretary, the business they had together, which is a very original scenario. And she said that, he fell in love with her, and I'm a romantic. I accepted that love occurs, and then there's nothing you can do about it. We got divorced, and now I'm in a relationship with a nice man, but I cannot open my heart to this man. I don't feel as good in this relationship as I feel in my other relationship. So please help me. So we started to look at the emotions. Right? First of all, she was denying in a psychological defense that she's still hurt about it because her body had done such a good job through physiological defenses not to feel the pain that has not been processed. And therefore, she couldn't feel anything. You could be shut the body down because of bad feelings you cannot tolerate. You shut the body down also toward unpleasant experiences and you can live in your brain. And so to cut the long story short, we worked with the defenses, you know, by you know, having a notice of chest, the constriction, putting a hand on the constriction, but remain focused on the emotion. And then I would continue to remind her that it was a betrayal, especially because he was the love of her life, you know, going back to high school. So support from others plays the most important role in whether we are able to come into an emotion or not. If we have support for emotions growing up, we have a better chance of arriving at ourselves. But the difficult emotions, the more difficult they get, 
you know, in the resonance, which is something I will talk about a little later, we need that support to feel what we feel, you know. And so there was so much pain, so much hurt and emptiness. These are what I call sensory motor emotions. And I would say, or just feeling bad and awful and wretched, you know, and uncomfortable in relation to situation or emotions in my broader definition of emotions. Then there was so much energy that came through because we also form defenses when the brain and body cannot handle it on a gross level, as we call it in India, that at the level of neurons and stuff like that, we found defenses on the quantum level, which is what is often called energetic level. It's all physical. You know, sometimes people think of energy as a woo-woo stuff that can't be observed. It is true that it cannot be observed. We cannot observe quantum phenomena, but that doesn't mean that they're not affecting us. So now cognitive scientists are you know, having theories of, cognition at the quantum level of a being and whether it's another body or the same body is, is not important so so much energy came through and the pain that spread through the body and then she wrote to me a month later to tell me dear Raja I'm so glad you worked with me because that session alone was the price of the admission of the workshop which is a two-day workshop and she said she's so much more open and loving toward her current partner so the physiological defenses play a considerable role unconsciously. And some of these defenses we form when we are children, you know, even in the womb. That's why it is hard to know that they're there. And defenses can form not only psychologically, such as denial and displacement and so on, but also physiologically. And this has been the realm of body psychotherapy for years, you know, starting with Wilhelm Reich, you know, in Vienna, contemporary Freud which is now gaining ground because more and more people are beginning to understand that the body defenses need to be worked with. And emotional experiences have to be worked with in the body. You know, Bessel van der Kolk, who has been quite influential in bringing to the mainstream psychology and psychiatry the idea that you have to work with traumatic experiences in the body, emotional experiences in the body through brain scans and so on. So if the body is shutting it down, and we limit it to one part of the body, right? It becomes, interestingly, more unbearable than we allow it to stream throughout the body or to more places in the body. And the science is a bit complicated, and I'll be glad to explain it a little later because it'll take us off on a tangent. But I want to talk about that when we do that, the resolution, emotional resolution, we can move through rather quickly. So one of the benefits of expanding the emotional experience to as much of the body as possible, then the emotional difficulty can be resolved more quickly. That is the experience. That's, that's one benefit. Simply because the body is more available. If I'm not as afraid, I can work through the fear of setting a boundary, then you know, my muscles of boundary, so the muscles that we use to push away people or kick people, etc., there are different muscles in the body that have different psychological functions. This has been established through research through a wonderful body psychotherapy system called Bodynamic Analysis, B-A-D-Y-N-A-M-I-C Analysis from Denmark. It's probably the most sophisticated body psychotherapy system to date. It's more complex and therefore it's not so widely known. So you know, when these boundary muscles become more relaxed, then, of course, we're able to set boundaries. Now, what about cognition? So when we're not blocking our body, 
then the body becomes more available for behavioral enactment. Then we can express ourselves more. When we can embody and tolerate the shame of not being good enough, we might be actually able to carry the feeling that we often block at the throat. Then we can actually say what we want, despite the fear and the shame. Not that the fear and the shame might go away, but we're able to tolerate it more because it's more expanded throughout the body. And one example I give to the client, I say, even psychotherapists are very afraid when I suggest this strategy to them. They come to us for relief from suffering. You want them to suffer more by expanding it throughout the body? That's paradoxical. Not if you think about it this way. The impact of the situation, if you limit it one part of the body, you're stressing that part of the body and dysregulating that part of the body more than it needs to. And the affect tolerance or the difficulty with the emotion has a lot to do with the level of dysregulation and stress in the body, in one part of the body. I say, think of lifting a 50-kilogram bag with one arm or both arms. Which was easier? And they would say, of course, both hands. Is it a trick question? Then I say, in the same way, emotion, if you can expand it to as much of the body as possible, supporting it internally, getting support for it from others, by working on the psychological defenses and the physiological defenses, which we'll talk more about, the details of, and I have a whole chapter on it, expansion regulation. You know, you expand it and regulate it at the same time so that it remains as tolerable as possible. Then the emotions can resolve or more available. We know that, for example, when we inhibit people from experiencing emotions in the body, you know what happens? Paula Niedenthal of the Emotions Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison, who does a lot of this research, has found that even inhibiting an emotional experience from expanding into the face can severely inhibit the processing of the emotion and the context of the emotion during the exposure to an emotional movie clip, after that, and one week later. So embodiment of emotion is important for improving the cognition and the behavioral analysis of the situation in the brain. So that's one stream of research. There are many streams of research I talk about under the chapter called emotion, cognition, and behavior. There's a lot there, like that things cannot be separated. For example, you cannot, in the physiologically in the brain or the body, cannot separate neurologically or physiologically. This is new research. So if you inhibit one function, you've got to inhibit the others. Now with emotion, if I inhibit, let's say, my fear to my chest, I not only have a harder time with it, I'm trying to force all the energy to impact one area and when other areas should be participating and sharing the load from that point of view. So but when I do that, the cognition is impaired. There's a direct evidence from Paula Niedenthal. The inhibit emotions in the body, cognition about the situation deteriorates. And along with it, of course, the behavior, because behavioral responses are based on cognition and the meaning we make from it. In fact, when we inhibit emotions, physiologically, we also make the body less available for behavior. But what, what about cognition? People say, what does cognition have to do with the body? This is new to many people, even psychotherapists. And if I say, the three are related, so if you inhibit one, the other two will be related, and here's the evidence. But there is also direct evidence that the body is involved in all kinds of cognition, from attention, focus, memory, meaning, language, 
and so on. They are all affected. And this is the science of embodied and embedded cognition that says that all aspects of cognition depend on the body as well as the environment it is situated in. And there's a lot of research. So if we constrict the body and make it less available, it's less available not only for emotion, right? Clearly, that's what we're trying to minimize. But it also compromises behavior as well as cognition. There's one study after the other. I'll give you an example. In the Netherlands, they did this research where they gave shoppers at a grocery store a choice of two modes of carrying the items. One is the hand cart, you know, that you lift. Or we have the push cart, right? We push the cart before us. When we think of buying many items, we get the cart. When we think of a few items, we get the hand basket. And then if we think that we're only going to pick up one or two, we use our hands, right? And especially people like me with the delusions of being anti-consumerist will go in and say, I'm not going to buy many. And so much consumerism at Costco. So I will only collect things with my bare hands, the bare essentials, you know, that I need. But, you know, I find myself at the end of it caring so much that it can hardly contain. These things are falling off my hands and I'm holding my hands close to my chest to hold on these items. And somebody will come to us and say, take a basket, take a thing to relieve me of my suffering, right? So the question is, who ends up buying unplanned impulse items such as that attractive bar of chocolate that I know that I shouldn't have at the checkout counter. Who buys things from on more on impulse that they have not planned to buy? The people with the push cart or the handbasket? What do you think, Antonio? Take a stab. Well, logic, quote unquote logic, would point towards the person with the handbasket would yeah. be less subject yeah. to the impulse buying. Yeah, but the finding is exactly the opposite. And the reason is because the person who is using the push cart is pushing things away from them. And this is a psychomotor movement that they have found the triceps muscle on the back of the upper arm that locks the elbow, you know, so that you can push people away, is engaged, you know. The, the children are constantly pushing things away from their parents that they don't, don't like, you know. And so the use of that activation of the muscle and body dynamic analysis has been found to increase the boundary setting abilities of people, such as in a, in a domestic violence situation and so on. They start to think of the possibility that they can actually push somebody away, set boundaries. They start to have emotions about it, like not just fear, but anger, which we need in order to assert ourselves. And they actually end up doing it. So the heavier the cough gets, the more we have to push, the more we are engaging the triceps group, and therefore we are less likely to pick up something that is impulsive or that's not good for us. This is interesting, right? Interesting. Whereas the, the hand basket, you're using the biceps muscle group in the upper arm, and that is what we use to drag people toward us and hold on to people and, you know, to bring stuff starting from the time we are crawling around. So it's associated with emotions of wanting and bringing things to us. So the heavier the handbasket gets, the more likely it's activated and you're more likely to be able to not say no to the brain that says, hey, that's sugar, that's unhealthy, etc. That's, you know, analytical thinking is overridden by the enacting body. So this can be a subject of a whole interview. But you get the idea. So 
the body is involved in cognition in so many different ways. And I talk about many of these in the chapter on emotion, cognition, and behavior. Now, and body psychotherapists have known for a long time that we use strong physiological defenses, not just psychological defenses to fend off emotions. And that's one of the reasons why in certain forms of therapy called breath therapy, when they have people breathe rapidly through the chest, they break through all these physiological defenses and emotions come through. Not only do emotions come through, but early emotions that come through. The early emotions of loneliness and fear that we couldn't tolerate when we were abandoned. And that's my experience. I've had all kinds of traumas that, you know, essentially set me up to pursue this line of work and not only for myself, but hopefully for people at large. So when we make the body more open with an emotional experience, especially when it's unpleasant, it becomes more bearable. This is one of the experiences. I remember one person saying, I'm feeling the fear of dying that I'm not, you know, that I've run away from all my life and I cannot believe it that I'm actually tolerating it and staying with it. That is possible. Equally, it's equally possible that I can hold on to the love I have for this woman. It doesn't disappear with the constriction in my body. So when I open the body and tolerate it for a longer-term solution of the emotion of the issue so it can be resolved, but also I'm improving the cognition and behavior, which in a way will become more helpful to resolve it. Because Damasio said that when you have emotions, your cognition and behavior in a difficult situation improves considerably. You know, in the study of brain-damaged people, documented in the book Descartes-Era. Now, of course, here's the problem. The problem is that we also know there are crimes of passion, right? For example, it just happened during the Oscar ceremony. And clearly, that's not good. Right? It has led to a lot of consequences for Will Smith. Right? And so this is what we would call dysregulated emotions are acting out. However much it might be justified because there's strong emotions. So what I add to Damasio's finding that emotions, their presence, improves cognition and behavior in relation to the situation, that's difficult. I would say regulated emotions even improves cognitive and behavioral outcomes further. Does it make sense? Am I clear enough? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's actually yeah. one of the things that I found so impressive. You shared numerous stories of how people who experience even very small increases in their emotional tolerance physiologically in their body over a relatively short period of time created profound healing effects or catalyze the cascading healing effect over time, which, yeah. which was very impressive considering that even just a small, a small increase in emotional tolerance can really open up a whole cascade of healing. Yeah, uh, that puzzled me. In the beginning, I thought that you need to work with a high level of emotion and at an edge where people can hardly tolerate it and stay with it for a longer period of time, like in prolonged exposure therapy. But when I started to do these high-energy sessions, you know, or what I would call television-worthy sessions, they're entertaining because of the sheer intensity of the emotions and the shifts that they bring about. And then I started to fail. Most people, 
especially in the world today where emotions are very dysregulated or people, you know, go away from them and using a lot of medication to manage emotional experiences without them even coming into consciousness. People are forming severe physiological symptoms, what we used to call psychosomatic symptoms, what are now called psychophysiological symptoms, right? Because psychosomatic has become a negative term. So they change the terminology. We form symptoms like asthma and uh, chronic fatigue, migraines. You know, the estimate of the U.S. Association for Psychophysiological Disorders or symptoms formed by medical doctors that up to one-third of the symptoms that people seek medical treatment for are psychophysiological in nature. One thing that's really fascinating is that we're just coming to realize that our cognitive brain function and our physical bodies and the environment around us are not separate, that we have been conditioned in our Western culture to see them, to divide them with very clear boundaries, and we don't allow an understanding of how interconnected and interdependent they are, especially in terms of what you've been talking about, our direct experience of our yeah. our actual lives in every right. second. Right, right. And, you know, it's not limited to Western culture. I would like listeners to just reflect on a very simple experience, answer the simple question. What, on what depends the baby's experience of bonding with its mother, the newborn? What does it depend on? Does it depend only on the brain? No. It depends on what? the body of the child, whether it's feeling good or not in relation to another body. And is that independent of whether the mother and child are living in a war zone, fleeing a war zone, or living at a time of relative peace? So it will depend on the environment, right? Does it depend on whether the environment that the mother and child are living are toxic for some reason, polluted, or not polluted because the baby's bonding experience with the mother, you know, both their bodies depend on an environment that makes them feel good or bad. So the child will experience the body of the mother is not good because it is not feeling good because it's breathing in toxic, in a polluted air and so is the mother. So it is so easy to Dennis, you know, forget all the science. The science is a reverse engineering of a common wisdom, isn't it? Very often that is the case here. So, absolutely, yeah. And that could also lead us into what you call interpersonal resonance, which is yeah. another yeah. another wonderful experiential factor that we tend to not be aware of in our culture. Yeah, absolutely. The interpersonal resonance is the ability we have to gather information from other bodies, other brains, through electromagnetic means as well as quantum mechanical means. You know, we have the science of it now, that we do exchange information with each other. Now, traditional psychology has been very concerned about transference and counter-transference, imposing, you know, therapists imposing their experiences on clients and vice versa, displacing their reactions from other situations to the situation between the therapist and client. So concerned about it that we throw the baby out of the bathwater, that the innate ability we have you know, going back to our archetypal basis. I've written a whole chapter on it because I use it a lot. 
you know, in attachment work, you know, in relationship work. Researchers like Peter Fonagy out of the United Kingdom are now emphatically stating that a mother who raises a secure child is able to do what? Experience the emotional state of the child that can barely express it in her body as it were hers. And how does that happen? It happens through, through there is a distortion of transference and counter-transference and reactivity on the part of both the child and the mother, right, to each other. But over and above that, the intent to mother opens the electromagnetic and quantum fields of the mother to receive the child's anxiety to transmute it because she has a more mature physiology and capacity and then to send this information back to the child. This is what Pliny and psychoanalysts used to call projection and projective identification. The child projects into the mother the anxiety that it cannot tolerate, the mother willingly or unwillingly because she's programmed by evolution to parent accepts it and suffers and changes it and then sends back the help, not only through cooing and providing milk, taking the child to the breast and so on, but also intuitively. This is why mothers can know that child is not playing in the front yard. It has gone somewhere. And the instinct is based on such communication between the mothers and the child's system being so in quantum physics entangled, you know entangled systems that are related to each other, even if you take them at a great distance from each other, they can actually relate to each other. You know, if you change the state of one, the other changes simultaneously without a time lag. So we're talking about such instantaneous communication. You know, I remember the example given by, um, uh, I forget his name. It's a book called One Mind. But parents in a boat accident on a vacation in Florida, They've left this nine-year-old or eight-year-old girl back with their aunt while they go on this fishing holiday. The boat crashes on a rock in the ocean and they're kind of bleeding you know, on the rock. The child says, my parents are dying at the very moment that they were actually injured. And that was verified later. My dog was in India. You know, I lost my mother last year and I was in India for seven and a half months the most important woman in my life, who can actually track me from afar, even when we didn't have contact for a while because I was doing inner child work and polarizing against my parents. Even then, she knew that I was in trouble. She went on a pilgrimage. And she verified with me that it was indeed a time of great trial and tribulation in my life here. And the reason why my dog, for example, are dogs on the farm that I bonded with during the loss of my mother, they became so depressed week before I left, it knew I was leaving. It was depressed, and it was depressed for a couple of weeks after, but it was depressed a week before. And there are stories of dogs finding their owners, you know, after having been left on a vacation 2,000 miles away, and it shows up two or three months later. So these things are not woo-woo any longer. You know, I was thinking about calling somebody, they call you. People have done research on it. So this ability... We have it. It's God-given, and we just need to trust it, even though it could be distorted by transference and counter-transference. The advantage of using it far outweighs the advantage of not using it and allow for the possibility of sensing each other and regulating each other through the mutual exchange of such energies. Then the 
emotional support we can provide people to make them aware of the unconscious states, not just conscious states, because much better. This is something that the therapist can have, and it's something that makes the work of doing therapy or even relating to other people so much more fun. It's never boring. Mm-hmm. Because we are not only approaching them with theories and interventions and cerebrally, but we are using a whole body for the purpose. And so I'm glad you brought that up. I was also wanting to go more into, as we develop a more subtle awareness of our emotional being in relation to everything around us, and you use the term granularity of right, emotional right, right, experience. Right. And as we become more subtly aware of these things, it actually increases our ability to have more of that kind of interpersonal resonance. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you can, you can actually explain it very, very easily, and I'll come to granularity in a moment. Then we can tolerate emotions, right? The body remains open to the brain, but also remains open to the environment, the larger environment, which means that we are open to receiving and sending such communications through electromagnetic and quantum mechanical means. And to clarify what you're talking about, electromagnetic and quantum qualities, it's fairly well known that most communication is nonverbal. Exactly. exactly. So what you're actually talking about are subtler levels of of communication that occurs between us and other people through other levels of experience. Exactly. It's on another level because usually nonverbal communication means... See, the traditional thinking implicit in all of it has been that we are islands. You and I are islands. We only communicate. Like the nonverbal communication from me to you will be the tone of voice, the facial expression and body expression, period, right? But here we're saying, hey, something is actually happening on an unconscious level a little bit of it can be made conscious and can be used to great effect, you know, and relating to people as well as, you know, if I go to the forest, uh, Vermont, if I want to enjoy it more, you know, not just cognitively say what, how beautiful the colors are, but in every cell of my body, I need to be open to, my body needs to be open to the electromagnetic and quantum emanations from trees because they're also living beings. I'm speaking with Raja Selvam. He's the author of The Practice of Embodying Emotions, A Guide to Improving Cognitive, Emotional, and Behavioral Outcomes. And so it actually improves the quality of life. But let me go beyond that to this idea. When I become more open to the people, the resonance, I regulate them, they regulate me, I depend on them more, I get more out of my life. It's actually easier to be with, live my life. But I'm also opening my body to the archetypal energies of the universe, which are again at the electromagnetic and quantum mechanical levels. And this is very important because, you know, people define spirituality in different ways. For me, spirituality is the connection between the individual and the whole. And the whole is represented, symbolized by one God concept or the other, or imageless image concept, you know, going across religions here. But the connection, you know, we are not separate from the universe, right? We know from the Big Bang, at the quantum level, there is actually no boundary between you and me. You're sitting there and I'm sitting here. There's no boundary, which, you know, it is true at the quantum level. But then we form neurons and skin and all those things. At that level, we have an apparent boundary, and we do, actually, to block these energies back and forth to some extent. But 
ultimately we are inseparable. This is one of those things. So when, when people hear that you're not separate from the universe, right, that is true actually scientifically. You know, it's science backs it up. But if I form defenses at the level of neurons and muscle, etc., it does affect my connectivity with the universe. But the more connected I am, the more I feel supported. I live a lot in Germany where nature worship is paramount. Even after it has been Christianized, Germany has remained very faithful to its origins in, in a nature worship. But here, these California oak trees around, I see right now. I sense it to them, I'm with my body with the intention of resonating with them. I feel so grounded and so stable, you know, and my process slows down. So this is real, and this is happening through the process of interpersonal resonance. Now, so if my individual can be connected more to the universe, there is no better definition of spirituality as far as I'm concerned. Yes, really. I agree. Yeah. And by the way, embodying emotions can also improve mindfulness, etc. You know, if you can open to it, we can talk about it a little bit, because mindfulness is a wonderful, wonderful approach. It has brought so much comfort and health, mental and physical, to millions and millions around the world, more than any psychotherapy modality or all psychotherapy modalities put together, because people can practice it easily, mindfulness, the idea of observing one's experience without being reactive to it as much as possible. And especially when it's body-based, which, you know, the mindfulness-based stress reduction approach, which is based on Vipassana, which is a Buddhist meditation, technique can be credited with this incredible job of making Western psychology believe more in the body. Now, you can improve that and the ability to separate the experiencer, the experience in me, right, which is core principle of mindfulness, is more possible when I can tolerate my experience than when I cannot tolerate my experience. So does it make sense, you know, quickly? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Because we, yeah. we cannot remain present with our environment, with ourselves, and with others when we are being hijacked by our emotional states. And the body's shutting down, you know? And the body's shutting down. Yeah. Exactly. I'm actually going to do a four-week course on this very subject in relation to even higher mindfulness. And what I call higher mindfulness is the following. Let's say I have an experience. I'm going to have your listeners tune in and actually do this with me in a, in a couple of minutes. Is that okay? Absolutely. Please. I, I love getting into practical applications. Yeah. So I'm sitting here and I'm watching my experience in my body. It can be anything. Like it's nippy in the morning and I put on too many clothes and I don't want to stop the interview to take some clothes off. So I'm warm and cold at the same time in different parts of the body. So I'm observing my body experience. And as I observe that, I'm going to ask myself the question, who's experiencing this? The answer would be, of course, my body, right? My body. My body is feeling hot and cold and uncomfortable from overdressing. Okay. Even doing that slows me down, makes me calmer. That's mindfulness, right? Then I'm going to go one step further and ask, whose body is it? And I say... My body, of course, stupid. So, who are you? I am me. Can you identify the me in your body as a body experience? This is what I'm going to do now. So, once again, I'm going to repeat the steps. You know, I'm sensing 
that I'm slightly overheated. I've also been drinking hot tea. That doesn't help. And I say my body is experiencing it. I am experiencing it. The I or the me, I'm bringing that under my awareness, right? It slips away. It's a slippery eel. You know why? Because Damasio writes in the book, the feeling of what happens is the basis of the sense of self. The book is called The Feeling of What Happens. So, neurologically, we know that the sense of self I experience in my body on the basis of which I say, I am here, is actually a product of body experience, not the cause of body experience. And bringing that under one's awareness, you know, separating that as an object of experience can be highly therapeutic. So I'm going to do that again. So my body is feeling warm. Actually, it doesn't feel as warm now that I've brought that experience under mindfulness. And I'm going to look for this slippery thing, smoke from the fire of experience, if you will. And I'm noticing that. I'm noticing that. And because I was able to regulate my ability to tolerate the heat in my body, it's most durable. I can actually, my ability to grasp it and stay with it is longer. Myself, me, what Vedanta is called the false sense of self. That our awareness, the origin of which will not be named, identifies with. This is the identification of pure awareness that we are all capable of with a body experience that gives me the certainty that I am here having an experience. So once again, I'm going to sense my body. It's calmer now. All the more calmer because I've not only made my body experience conscious, but also made the sense of self, me-self, called I-self, or what Ramana Maharishi called the I-thought, conscious. And when I do that, my body shakes and it fills up with energy because I do this practice a lot. And my brain gets calmer and even my centers in my forehead and crown open up, which, by the way, are associated with this ability to, you know, people who meditate on the crown and the third eye chakras will often have this experience of what? My thoughts and the observation, who's having this thought? Mm-hmm. It's just happening. Yeah. So again, I'm going to go to my body, it's experience, and my sense of self in the body and watch how my you know, body changes. The third level of mindfulness, I'm going to actually pay more attention to the awareness that's making my body experience conscious and my sense of self that's conscious. The sense of self is the one that needs to disappear. That's when we talk about ego dissolution. Ego is based on the sense of self, which is a product of experience. It's not there when you're asleep, in deep sleep. It always arises with experience and then claims retroactively that it's the one that that causes the experience. It arises with every action or every thought and then in turn says, I did that. So let's look at that. My body experience and the certain sense of self in my body and I'm looking at the awareness. Now I'm going toward the awareness. And this expands my eyes and head yeah, it's a favorite thing for me to do these days. 
especially when I'm bored or have difficulty falling asleep, I like it so much because it's such a reward-reinforcing kind of behavior, this kind of practice. You know, equivalent to Ramana Maharishi saying, you know, just become aware of your experience and see whether you can split it into fear awareness and the sense of self. And then you will be able to remain with the fear awareness. And when you try to locate it, you will realize that it is everywhere. Everything is in it. That you're well on your way to enlightenment. But the enlightenment path says the most important qualification for it is the ability to tolerate opposites in your person. This is true of intersubject of psychoanalysis. The affect tolerance, you know, the ability to tolerate affect, uh, affect tolerance is you know, what gives clients long-term health, even though they might come to you for short-term symptoms. Jungian psychology and alchemy say the individuation and personal development depend very much on the ability to tolerate opposites. Compassion, which is a super value or qualification of Buddhism, is not possible when we cannot tolerate opposites in human experience. And so mindfulness and spiritual practice, because more capacity of emotions be connected intuitively to the universe, electromagnetically and quantum mechanically, but also your practice, meditation practice, whatever it is, improves because you can actually split the experience from pure awareness and the sense of self, and then you can remain with the pure awareness if you have this basic capacity to tolerate opposites, which has to be done at the level of emotion. And that begins by being present in our body. Yeah. With yeah. anything and everything that, that arises in our yeah. body, because everything yeah. is arising in our body. Even the stories that we tell ourselves are yeah. arising in our body. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Including the brain in our body. Exactly. The, the, that distinction is only... Brain-body distinction is a product of modern science. They integrated. No? They both integrated. The body extends into the brain and vice versa, the brain. Certainly, it's more important because it's the command and control center for many of our operations, right? But I have to say that this is something important. With mindfulness, there can also be limitations. And I want to talk about it. Nowadays, people are tracking body sensations in minute detail. And there are therapies that do that, there are approaches that do that. One has to be a little careful because if one gets habituated to that, just tracking body sensations like constriction, etc., lack of flow of energy, can lead to discovering and undoing the defenses and lead to the emotions coming up. But it can also, you know, take the person away from it, especially if they don't have support for emotions within themselves, but even the support from others. It requires that we track our body on another level, meaningful level, relational level, and relation to the environment, and then expanding that and not going toward, oh, it's constricted there, it is, you know, numb there. That can lead to emotions, but I also find that it can be the defense against emotions, a learned defense against emotions. So adding the complementary approach of the practice of embodying emotions, I wrote, really wrote the book, with the idea that people who read it, not just therapists, people and people who practice things like mindfulness can easily find enough instruction in it because I have deconstructed the process into four easy steps that they add this component to their mindfulness practice. And I guarantee you that the outcomes will be much better. This is what people are telling me, you know, many of my students. 
are mindfulness practitioners, they tell me it's very important. And so all kinds of outcomes can be improved, energetic and physical, like symptoms like even asthma, and relational, especially through interpersonal resonance and spiritual practices. Because we know that our relationship to the environment and the relationship to cognition, emotional behavior, all get better and more functional. If we have time, I would like to guide them through the four steps of emotional embodiment, using myself as a reference while listeners focus on a problem they have and see whether that shifts something in them. Do we have time for that? I was just going to ask you to do that. (laughs) Okay, great, great. So there's four steps. The situation that's giving rise to emotion, I have to go to it in order to get to emotion very often. And then emotion, how I support myself to have the emotion, because we're doing it by ourselves, so it's a self-practice now. And the third thing is where I expand and regulate the emotional experience in the body. This physical model of expansion regulation, which we teach in the integral somatic psychology training, people might ask, where do you get the training? You know, there's a professional training for all mental health professionals, and it's even online this year. And in the U.S., it starts in June. And the website is www.integralsomaticpsychology.com, www.integralsomaticpsychology.com. And if you also search for the practice of embodying emotions, you know, you will get a link to the book, and then from there you can find my website. So... Expansion regulation, third step. And the fourth step is integration. Integration is a step that's optional where I actually take time to notice the physical and energetic and cognitive behavioral and relationship aspects having done one cycle of the practice of embodying emotion. So choose something now that's causing you difficulty, emotional difficulty, not some past issue. We're talking about bringing some immediate change so that you can observe it in relation to the immediate situation. For me, these days, time is a problem. I have to do so much. The book just came out last week. It is doing well, and I have so many things to do, people to respond to on social media that my consultant says I need to do, and he scolds me that I don't do it, and I have to write proposals for the course that I'm going to teach. I have to go shopping at Costco to take some things back to Germany. I have so many things to do, right? And I'm afraid that I'm not doing all of that. I'm afraid that I'm not doing enough of those things. And I'm afraid that this has been a pattern in my life. At every point in my life, my inner critic keeps saying that I never do enough. I do things poorly and not adequately. I'm sure that many of you can relate to it because this is very much part of her personality structure, the inner critic, right? Mm -hmm. And it makes my life miserable while I'm doing it, and then it makes me so miserable that I don't want to do it. You see the problem. Then I don't end up doing even what I can do. And, you know, in the future, I'm thinking I will do this, then immediately my heart sinks that because I know that I will not be able to do as much as I want to do because my standards are very high. So this is hell. You want to talk about hell after death. There's no hell after death. There's no evidence for it, by the way. But reincarnation, there is evidence, but no hell. And research on life between lives tells us that it's a very gentle re-education process. So the idea of heaven and hell is not there. It's more heaven than hell. But I can tell you that what I'm living right now in relation to the situation is hell. So 
I'm just feeling stressed. Stress is an emotion. If a situation causes you stress, by very definition, emotion is the impact that something has on your body, brain, and it's stress. And then as I expanded it from my chest to my kidney area, and they gave some voice to it to increase nonverbal communication, therefore expansion of the experience to the rest of the body, things became clearer. It's as there was a lot of junk floating on the lake that I would equate to all these thoughts and discomfort. And then everything cleared. I could see to the bottom where I felt in my body, I'm okay. And it will always be like this throughout my life. So then the more busy I get, I will not do certain things that I need to do. I will not have the time. And that has stayed with me. So I'm going to take the same example. And by now, I hope you have chosen an example. So step one, situation. Look at the details of the situation. It's the details of the situation that evoke emotion. Not, I'm in a dysfunctional relationship, but what exactly happened that made you uncomfortable or feel bad recently. So now I have to go to Seattle to present at the conference. I'm, of course, a little anxious about how it will go. And then all these things I have to do, get my real ID, etc. I don't have the time, you know. The email that I need will come on time by tomorrow. I'm leaving the day after tomorrow. You see how I'm kind of looking at all these things in the situation. And will my book selling well, but there's no guarantee it'll sell well next week. So I can add all these things, right? And of course, I'm feeling uncomfortable in my body. And so I've already arrived at an emotion, discomfort. That's what I'm going to work with because I know that eventually it will become clearer what the emotion is if I can embody this discomfort feeling bad. And, you know, I'm going to expand it. I'm also going to use a technique to involve my throat and face in it. So I'm going to just make a sound to express this discomfort that arises from the thought I will not be able to do everything that I need to do, or I might even forget to do some important things. So I'm going to vocalize it, right? Not to get it out, but like, uh, 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 and my face also gets involved. Uh, uh, uh. Immediately, I know that this is about something else. <laughs> Immediately, the cognition comes. It's about something else because it is a lifelong issue. I've developed a perfectionistic stance to cope with my childhood traumas, right? We all do. If I do things perfectly, then I will be safe, right? So that cognition is coming in, which is true, but I'm continuing with the emotion. Uh, 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 I will not get my real ID this time. Uh, uh, and then I'm going to look to see where else in the body is this. Already, I'm noticing the integration. My chest constriction is less, and it's more energetic. But I'm not going to pay attention to that and get off the topic. That's a nice way to avoid working with this issue in greater depth. So I'm going back to not being able to do all these things and the very unpleasantness of it, all for what? To have an assessment that I didn't do enough. So uh, 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 I'm even sensing it in my belly, the discomfort. And in my kidneys, which is a stress point for most people. Uh My body is going to the slight, because I've done this process a lot, I know it, 
it was slightly infantile kind of thing. My neck and jaw, and I just noticed it. So I'm getting more cognition that this has to do with the past, not the present, right? And that makes it easier for me to stay with it, you know? So uh, uh, I'm even opening my jaws to disinhibit the defense there of constriction. Uh, 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 uh. And my legs are getting involved. I have more energy in the legs. The discomfort itself is less throughout. And I'm in a regressed, slightly regressed state because I know this from my processing my abandonment, you know. So, uh, 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 uh. So when I was 10 months old, there was a separation, long separation that repeated itself over time until I was five years old because my mother fell ill at the time. But tell that to a child. Uh, uh. Uh, I actually do not expect it to go this deep today, but it makes sense because I worked with it more superficially the other day and got this clarity, you know, and now clarity might take a little more time. I'm going to say awful, awful, awful. This is such a hell to live in. They're always falling short, you know. Uh, 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 uh. So my language, you know, I'm able to language it better, you know. And what I'm noticing is that I'm more within my skin. I feel more comfort in my skin as I process this deeper layer that I didn't know that I could come across on a radio show. And the reason why I'm also able to do that is because I'm with you, you know. We are in resonance, right? And you're doing your thing, I'm doing my thing like in a family system. And this is what makes Online sessions, you know, interpersonal resonance, if you learn how to practice it, you can, your sessions online with your clients, or the emotional support you provide your family members online, the connectivity will all be much greater, you know. No doubt that being next to the person is better because of the short-term electromagnetic energies are there. But here, at least quantum mechanically, you can do that. So, uh, 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 uh. so it's going with my regress state, but I'm not concerned about it. You know, I, I can see cognitively that it belongs to the past. I can see it in my body. And so what I'm going to do, because of the time limitation, so I'm going to do the following. I'm going to just notice how my body is feeling better. That's integration. So I will work on it later, but let me see what it does. Sometimes this might still resolve the current reaction that I feel in the days today and tomorrow as I go about doing things. And now I'm kind of letting the scenario go, the situation go, and the, even the emotion go, but I'm focused on how my body is beginning to feel better energetically, how I'm feeling more present, and immediately I'm going to test it, perhaps too soon. The longer you stay in this phase, the more stability you will have, the more connected you get to the environment, and the archetypal energies can connect with you to resolve this issue. So... I feel more connected to the trees around me. I'm noticing that. This is an optional step. And then I'm going to test it, take it for a ride, so to speak. I'm going to say, hey, what if I don't get all the things that I have on my agenda on paper here? It's okay. That's what I get from my body right now. It's okay. And I'm going to ask a bigger question. Even if it's like this throughout your life, are you okay with it? 
does it define you? The body says yes. I might, of course, have to do it over and over again and go deeper into the origins of this pattern that makes my life hellish. So will it be okay if things didn't go well at the conference? Can I do all the things I want to do? I'm disappointed. Yeah, I'm okay, the body says. It might not say that later, but then I might have to do some work. But for now, I'm not projecting into the future and suffering from it. I'm more at peace. I hope that you can practice because you have emotions all the time. And if you don't find anything, just go to what you feel bad about and take that as an emotion and expand it. And you will see your thinking and behavior improve in relation to the situation. And you might even find out that your reaction in the present doesn't have to be. And the book is written in such a way that you can actually do that right from the first section. The book is organized in three sections. There's an introduction on how it developed, the sources, the many shoulders I stand on, and then all the basic concepts and steps in a very readable form with lots of examples, with lots of variations in terms of levels of emotion, intensity of emotion, and so on. The different applications, trauma, you know, relationship work, spirituality, borderline states, and so on. And then the second section is theory, all the science of it all, including a broadened definition of emotions in a chapter, or lots of emotions. The final section before conclusion is the method, the practice, in four steps, including another chapter on interpersonal resonance. I hope you find it useful, but you know, now that we've done this, I suggest that you start right away, so that when you read the book, you will already have raw material to relate to. So, Tonio, thank you so much. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, And when you said that, hey, you can go as deep as you want because the audience is quite sophisticated and I, I just loved it you know, uh, that I could go as much as I could. And uh, I hope it was a good experience for you and uh, it was certainly a great experience for me. I get to work, do my own work recruiting you as my therapist, so to speak, in the residence. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And I greatly appreciate your work and this book that you shared with us. Thank you. That was Raja Selvam. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and the developer of Integral Somatic Psychology, a therapeutic approach based on emerging scientific paradigms of embodied cognition emotion and behavior, and affective neuroscience, as well as on a wide range of Western and Eastern psychological, somatic, energetic, and spiritual approaches. He also does professional training all over the world and is the author of this book that we've been talking about, The Practice of Embodying Emotions, A Guide to Improving Cognitive, Emotional, and Behavioral Outcomes. for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much to everyone who contributed to our successful spring fundraiser. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.